Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 65. Didn't I tell you that the autopsy was a medical labyrinth? We're hardly into it, and it may have already started to feel that way to you. Or maybe I just know too much already. But I do know I'm in the labyrinth. So before we do any more crawling around in the weeds, I want to pause for a moment and talk a little bit about the central questions and issues that surround the autopsy. There are a lot of them. I've been talking around the edges of that for the last two episodes, giving generalities mostly, and only a couple of specifics. More storytelling so far. But I think it would be good if we spend this episode discussing the inventory of the more controversial aspects of the autopsy and its implications. Then, in subsequent episodes, we can tell the rest of the story on what happened that night and in the ensuing periods after, too. And we'll view the rest of the autopsy proceedings through the eyes of Siebert and O'Neill and, and others. Don't worry. This is like a lake with lots of fingers that reach out everywhere. And in search of the truth, we'll go down a number of those fingers, always mindful of how to get back to the main water of the lake and make it home. So without further ado, let's listen to episode 65 of JFK. The Enduring Secret. So why is it that the autopsy itself is so controversial? There exists a seven or so page official autopsy report, the official report. It has but just a few words on the face page. Cause of death? Gunshot wound to the head. Pretty simple and straightforward, isn't it? There is absolutely no controversy about it. JFK died of a gunshot wound to the head. And the rest is the sad story of the assassination and the rest of the details are, in a human sense, somewhat irrelevant. But killing anyone, let alone killing the President of the United States, is a crime in our country. This murder is now one of the most famous in the history of the modern world. Movements occurring in the moment sometimes take over great events. But if cooler heads would have prevailed on the day of the assassination, they would have immediately begun thinking like an investigator and knowing that the nature of the crime would likely never be fully resolved without an impregnable autopsy result. That you should not lead evidence to a result, but rather that evidence itself should lead you, as an investigator, to the truth. And yet, from the very beginning, this whole thing, this thing of the autopsy, was a C-minus attempt to check the box on something. An autopsy that the Kennedy family was not terribly interested in for various reasons. And, frankly, many high officials were not interested in it either, for other reasons. The authorities had their man in custody, and the FBI was already saying it was an open and shut case. 
Lee Harvey Oswald was the one who fired the fatal shots from the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository. All they really needed from the autopsy was to remove the bullets from the president's body and tie them back forensically to the Manlicher Carcano rifle that was already in custody. There was really no need for anything more to come out of the autopsy. No real great level of sophistication required. That would do it. That would be enough to convict the killer. So the autopsy truly began as an exercise to simply excise the bullet or bullets from the president's body. I know this is a stretch, but maybe you or I could successfully do that. Crudely, anyway. Little did anyone know that all of the other questions surrounding the assassination would bubble up and require, inevitably, that we turn to key forensic evidence in order to try and resolve who really fired the shot that killed the president and from where. Even in 1963, it was pure naivete that this question around a pristine autopsy could be somehow suppressed. But as the government began to formulate its single-bullet theory, the necessity of conforming the autopsy narrative to that theory, well, it became critical and central to the Warren Commission report. Without a cohesive and credible autopsy finding which supported the single-bullet theory, the idea of a lone assassin, the idea that Lee Harvey Oswald was the only one up on the floor firing a gun, firing it from the sixth floor of the school book depository? Well, without such a cohesive and credible autopsy report, the whole thing would just fall apart. Government officials found themselves in a difficult circumstance. They may have embraced the lone gunman theory for practical public policy reasons. To settle the country down and to keep the war hawks away at that moment from the idea that the Russians or the Cubans did it and that we should retaliate immediately with war. A war that, as Johnson described it to Earl Warren, would be a nuclear war that might kill 40 million people in the drop of a hat. It's unlikely that on the night of the autopsy, people like Hoover and others were trying to influence what came out of that process or what was conducted that night. In fact, ironically, in some ways, Probably the most objective set of discussions about what did happen that night came from two people who clearly did not influence anything there. They were the two FBI agents, Jim Siebert and Francis O'Neill. In fact, in later years, Jim Siebert made comments about the single bullet theory espoused by Arlen Specter, and those comments were essentially that the single bullet theory was nonsense. But the Secret Service on that Saturday morning after the assassination sat in Abraham Zapruder's office and watched the results of the Zapruder film. Sure, no one had done much in the way of scientific analysis yet and had not compared it yet to the physical limits of cocking and reloading and refiring the Manlicher Carcano rifle, the rifle that the authorities were now displaying as the murder weapon. That would all come later. So it's highly unlikely that at that very moment, someone was formulating the idea that it was physically impossible for a fourth shot, given the time sequence and the time stamps contained in the Zapruder film. No one had yet put that two and two together. 
This sequence of events is critical for you as a member of the jury to understand in that you have to be mindful of the state of mind and the motivations of anyone at that moment that night in the autopsy room. The need to bend the narrative was forming, but it was not yet well-formed, by the government anyway, and certainly not in the specifics of what might need to be done during the autopsy to support a lone gunman theory, perhaps generally, but not specifically. At least I don't think so. Things did move quick enough, and Lee Harvey Oswald's assassination on Sunday was a game-changer. His death meant that there would be no murder trial. His death meant that whatever documentation that was associated with the autopsy, while it might be subject to some form of formal government review, the form of which was not yet at that point known, probably a court of inquiry in Texas, it would not be subjected, though, to a murder trial, and it would not have to stand up to the scrutiny of cross-examination. Truly, by Sunday afternoon, the game had changed. That is why the burning of the first autopsy report on Sunday by Commander Humes got more than just a raised eyebrow as this whole mess unfolded. What might have passed for just the routine disposal of an earlier draft eventually came to be understood as a rewrite of the autopsy report and the destruction of the underlying notes. And Humes, under testimony in later years, probably perjured himself about the destruction of the original autopsy finding, trying to limit the narrative to just the destruction of the notes and not an original autopsy report as well. And this further added suspicion that the government influence at least by that Sunday morning, had already begun to leak into the recesses of this story, in a big way. And the government now knew. They knew that there was not going to be a murder trial, that the public's own suspicions around what the hell was going on was likely going to mushroom. Obviously, that led to the imminent development of the Warren Commission itself. But believe me, at this moment, there were people already thinking about that autopsy. Even if they weren't thinking about it in a certain way on Friday night, they were thinking that way by Sunday morning. So you see now, whatever they did at the autopsy on Friday night couldn't be reversed. And whatever they didn't do, well, it could stay that way and it would forever because the body would be buried shortly at Arlington Cemetery. The only real follow-up procedure was potentially a resection of the brain that was still to be completed. So, with that backdrop, let's now enumerate the more significant issues within the autopsy. Probably first and foremost, as you have already heard, the majority of Parkland doctors believe that the bullet wound to the president's neck was an entrance wound, the front of his neck. A number of doctors observed it in the short period of time they had the ability to do so. Before Dr. Perry performed a tracheostomy and essentially obliterated the original hole. Their descriptions support the idea that it was a small-sized and round hole about the size of the missile in question with smooth edges. And it essentially had the characteristics and nature of an entrance wound. Now, granted, the Parkland doctors conducted all their work while the president was lying flat on his back. They never knew, until after the fact, 
that he had been shot from behind and below the head. This information was simply not available to them to influence their views of it, their view of whether it was an entrance or an exit wound in the front of his neck. There were statements made in the first 24 hours by the Parkland doctors, public statements that supported the idea that the neck wound was an entrance wound. So here you have a circumstance almost from the beginning where a more experienced and highly qualified group of practicing physicians were making statements that would be contrary to the findings contained in the official autopsy. Basic controversy number one. And I will explore some of the details of that later in this series of episodes. And you've already heard some of it in previous episodes, particularly the testimony of Dr. Jones and Dr. McClellan. There is clear evidence that the shot to the back entered the president's back at a point that was lower than where it purportedly exited through the front of his neck. How could a bullet entering the president's back at a downward angle of about 21 degrees suddenly make a vertical turn upward? and head the other way, then exiting out of the front of his neck at a point above the height at which it entered his back. That really is magic. Hold on. While it is remotely possible anatomically for the bullet to enter the president's back and then collide with a body part and then ricochet upward and then exit out of the throat, Well, to have done so and not have produced an irregularly shaped exit wound, an irregular shape that would have almost certainly resulted from the yaw and tumble of the bullet after it was knocked off of its original trajectory, well, that is almost impossible. None of the Parkland doctors saw a wound that represented that kind of exit. They saw a smooth-edged wound that was approximately the size of the 6.5-millimeter Carcano cartridge, nothing that would represent an irregularly shaped exit wound, a wound that would have inevitably have come from that. And remember, in the government's single bullet or magic bullet theory, that bullet was not done traveling when it initially ran through the president. In fact, it was just getting started. It was on its way then to first penetrate Governor Connolly's back. And then it wasn't even done then. There was another curtain encore. It would leave after hitting a rib. And then, as you recall, it would then go shatter his wrist and then ultimately end up in his thigh. As we said in earlier episodes, this is really a stretch. And when you focus on the absolute first reversal of direction within Kennedy that would have had to have taken place with that bullet, it really makes this whole theory seem ridiculous. Unfortunately, the visual evidence of the size of that wound on his neck was there for only a few frantic minutes at Parkland. And people don't take pictures of a patient in the middle of an emergency room event. The only place this information was forever kept was in the minds of a couple of doctors who looked right down at that wound at that moment before the tracheostomy was performed. Then, the physical evidence, the irrefutable physical and forensic evidence, was lost forever. But the autopsy team performed no procedures that would confirm the strange path of this strange bullet. And that is likely because, at this moment, they weren't focused on a single bullet or magic bullet theory. 
The doctors in Parkland didn't know that there was a missile that hit the president below the head. That was discovered by Dr. Humes during the course of the autopsy. Once discovered, he began a procedure, a rather standard procedure, of probing the path which the missile took. But what happens next would create much of the controversy. As he probed deeper into the wound, there was no bullet to be found. Where was it? The conclusion from his probing is that the bullet did not penetrate very deeply because the path, the path of the bullet, just seemed to end. There was no tracing of the path that produced an exit out of the body. I am using lay terms here, but that is normal procedure that would take place, an attempt to trace the entire traverse of the bullet. This led Humes to conclude at that moment that the bullet that hit the president's back had entered and stopped after only a shallow penetration. And then finally, that this same bullet had likely fallen out somewhere along the line. Probably, Humes surmised, somewhere in Parkland after cardiac massage was administered. Interestingly enough, there was a story published a number of years later of an individual who was there that night that did indeed uncover a bullet in the autopsy room. But we'll leave that to a later episode. Dr. Humes claims that as of that very moment, he had not yet heard from any of the Parkland doctors. He was, therefore, unaware that there was a bullet wound in the front of the president's neck. This is a critical and time-sensitive assertion by Dr. Humes. Why? Well, afterward, he would claim ignorance of this fact, ignorance at that moment of the existence of the frontal wound. After all, the tracheostomy incision had obliterated the wound, and this ignorance would provide a convenient justification for the reasons why he did not perform additional autopsy procedures to section the shoulder and try to more precisely determine whether the rigor mortis or other factors had obscured the path of that bullet from its entrance in the rear to its exit, if it indeed did exit. It was a procedure that most assuredly would have confirmed or denied a conclusion as to whether the entrance wound on the back did indeed take a path and exit out the front of the president's neck. The procedure was not done, so we will never know the definitive result. Only the problem here was that there is now ample evidence, evidence that Humes in fact was notified of the gunshot wound in the front on Friday night actually during the course of the autopsy and probably in time to complete such a procedure. His maintenance that he did not know it, well, that now seems to be clearly refuted by more than one highly credible witness, which you will hear from at least one of them in the course of these episodes. It was likely not the only time that Dr. Humes told a lie or committed perjury about critical facts that night related to the autopsy. Why? Well, we really don't know why. Whether it was to protect his own personal reputation or whether it was directed by pressure from elsewhere, we really don't know. 
But the fact is, he did. The simple notes that Humes prepared and which became his autopsy notes included a drawing, a small outline of a human body, an anatomical pad that is often used in a morgue to make crude notes on. It's not anatomically accurate, but he placed a dot on that outline showing where the bullet entered President Kennedy's back. That dot in the drawing was not high enough on the neck. It was not drawn on a spot that would have been feasible for the bullet to have entered the back and exited the front through the tracheostomy wound on a downward angle. Rather, that dot was placed on the drawing fairly down in the shoulder area, clearly his own drawing depicting the bullet coming in lower in the upper back. This was consistent with the testimony of a number of individuals. And this seemed on the surface to validate that the position of the entrance wound in the back was just too low to have exited out the front and through the tracheostomy wound. Humes would later explain this discrepancy by saying that it was just simply a rough note and that you had to refer specifically to the exact measurements contained on that same sheet in order to determine the exact location and geography of the bullet wound. In fact, this was fairly simple to understand, and it was a snafu. It was one that got so much attention in the press, where that dot was, uh, mainly because it was so easy for the public to understand. Humes agreed to go on television and answer to Walter Cronkite and the CBS News team on their special report that they produced on the Warren Commission. You'll hear that clip later in this set of episodes. What was odd about those measurements was where they were measured from. Making anatomical measurements like Humes was making usually requires the measurement from some anatomical feature that is fixed. The reasons for this, I think, are obvious, right? If you measure the distance from a fixed object, there is little variation that could take place in the measurement. The precision of the measurement then, by definition, goes up. But Humes made the decision to make the measurements from an area which is essentially around and near the upper ear, and then measuring downward from there. Clearly, heads move and they could be positioned left or right or backward or forward or up or down. The point is, they are not fixed. And if a head moves, then using this approach virtually assures that measuring downward from some point on the head could result in the different placements of that wound. Some higher, some lower, depending on the position of the head when measuring. As Cyril Wecht would say later, this just wasn't the normal way you would go about measuring and documenting the exact location of that wound. It was not the normal fixed point that would be used under normal circumstances. Which brings us to the next very controversial aspect of the autopsy. It relates primarily to the experience of the man who did it. Really, the men who did it. This measurement process that I have just described may very well have been the result of a lesser experienced set of pathologists simply doing what they thought was right. But if it was just that and nothing more, it was certainly at least one more indication that this individual, this team, that was charged with obtaining forensic evidence on the murder of the President of the United States was simply not very experienced in what they were doing. 
That was the best conclusion that could be made, the kindest conclusion without implying anything more nefarious. As I mentioned a minute ago, on Sunday morning, Humes went to his basement and then to his fireplace, and there he burned the original notes for the autopsy. Later, under oath, it would be revealed that not only did he burn his own notes, but it was likely that he burned the first version of the official autopsy report, but not before a copy of it got loose somewhere outside of his basement. We'll talk about that in a later episode. Next, one of the most controversial aspects of the autopsy has to do with photographic evidence. From the start, the Kennedy family did not want photographs of the president's dead body, and my God, they certainly didn't want photographs floating around from the autopsy itself. The Warren Commission had decided that whatever evidence they used, they would make public as part of the publication of the Warren Commission report and all of its published exhibits. In one sense, this was a really good thing that they decided upon. In the subsequent years to come, it was really one of the things that helped to reveal the truth, with so much of it sitting in plain sight. All the evidential contradictions just buried in the 26 volumes of evidence. But with regard to the autopsy, it simply created a very sticky dilemma. Earl Warren got a chance to see the autopsy photographs. He was shocked by them, and that highly influenced the decision to not include any of that material in the Warren Commission report. The Kennedy family was dead set against it as well, and there is more to come on that. In the end, what was decided was that the commission would create a series of drawings for inclusion in the Warren report. And the sad part about that was that the drawings themselves were not even made from the actual photographs that were taken. If you can believe this, they were made based on an oral articulation by the autopsy doctors at Bethesda as to what they saw. And to top it off, these drawings were made from memory several months after the autopsy itself took place. Needless to say, they were highly inaccurate. And because of everything else that resulted related to the autopsy, the whole idea of using these drawings became really a poster child, so to speak, for deception. When those drawings began to come under great scrutiny, and it was clear that they were inaccurate, that ignited a huge movement to attain the actual photographs and radiology materials, to examine them directly. All this foolishness and Keystone Cops routine around just exactly where the rear back wound was located, well, As we have said so many times, a picture, an accurate picture, would have been worth more than a thousand words here. It would have cleared up all of the controversy. It would have avoided the tens of thousands of hours that were invested in trying to officially describe and then defend exactly where that wound was. A joke, really. Rather than just a picture that almost anyone could then precisely identify the location on the president's back where the wound was. That's got to make you suspect. Eventually, some of the pictures would leak out or be released, and that is a story in and of itself. But these pictures would not clear up questions surrounding the exact nature of the head wounds. Information that might be critical in determining the nature and location from where the fatal shot came from. In fact, all they did was stir more controversy. 
Some of the photographs themselves, in fact, appeared to be doctored. There was absolutely no way that the president's head was intact after the massive head wound that he suffered, yet some of the photographs showed virtually no damage. How could this be? Later, there would be lots of discussion and conjecture about how a photograph could be taken of an area of the head and not reveal the kind of damage that actually occurred. All sorts of conjecture around the repositioning of skin and skin flaps, some of which was probably plausible. But in the end, there were so many eyewitnesses that looked at those photos and said, simply, that is not what I saw. It really calls the photographic information into question. Well, the House Select Committee on Assassinations did do a review and partially focused on the photographic evidence. Work that Michael Bodden and his autopsy team focused on did include the photographic evidence related to the autopsy. They looked at the radiographic evidence as well. It may very well be that the HSCA sidestepped many of these more prickly issues, maybe simply because they were so controversial and there really seemed to be no good answer. In some experts' views, they managed to sidestep many of the more difficult and core issues related to the autopsy. Of the esteemed panel that was assembled by the HSCA to review the autopsy material, there was but one dissenting voice. That was Cyril Wecht. We will hear his eloquent testimony to the House Select Committee on Assassinations to better understand why he dissented and what he thought. But you'll have to wait for another episode in the series for that. What they did know at Bethesda that night was that they had to prove, if possible, that the fatal shot to kill the president came from behind, which meant that they had to find some damage to the skull and the brain that indicated there was an entrance wound somewhere on the backside of Kennedy's head. That is really all they needed forensically to seal the deal. Well, as far as the government was concerned. A good portion of the skull on the right side was obliterated from the bullet or bullets that struck Kennedy's head. That night, during the course of the autopsy, three additional bone fragments were delivered to the autopsy room. They had been gathered and collected in Dallas and then separately flown to Washington in order for them to be available that night as part of the autopsy. It was not until Humes and team pieced these items together that they were able to conclude that there was evidence of beveling on the backside of those combined pieces. Beveling around the remaining defect or the hole that was formed by placing all the pieces together. That is, the presumed entrance wound or bullet hole. In the world of forensic pathology, folks like to describe the penetration of a bullet and its effects as it passes through a piece of glass. On the exit side of the glass, the pressure from the explosion actually creates a conical impression on the rear side of the glass, creating a telltale sign that such a side is the exit side of the missile. It's easy to see in glass. Well, the same thing happens when a bullet passes through bone, and piecing these skull fragments together allowed Humes to conclude that beveling had occurred on the inside of what was now a semi-complete or near-complete reconstruction of the defect in the president's head. Obtaining the three fragments was like completing a puzzle. That evidence led the autopsy team to conclude that the shot had come from higher up, and, and most importantly, from the rear. 
consistent with where Lee Harvey Oswald was thought to have made that fateful shot from. Well, those bone fragments came in late Friday night. They were taken directly down to the x-ray department where they were x-rayed by the higher quality fixed x-ray equipment that was in the department itself, rather than the portable x-ray equipment that was in the morgue. Portable x-ray equipment tends to produce a lesser quality film in general than the fixed equipment you would find in a radiology department. So the x-rays of those fragments are arguably a better quality than the rest of the x-rays taken that evening. The initial visual inspection of those interior conical edges did not produce a conclusion that there was any bullet residue from the bullet or any type of metal fragments shown. However, the higher quality x-ray did, to John Ebersol's surprise, produce that. In later years, more highly technical experts would challenge the conclusions that the evidence was sufficient to conclude on that interior beveling. The basic facts that support a shot coming from the rear. But because the basic evidential materials were tucked away for so long after the assassination, there really wasn't anyone who could challenge it. Not in the early years, anyway, after the assassination. Oh, and by the way, not even the Warren Commission staffers, the lawyers themselves, including Arlen Specter, were allowed to see the original photographic evidence and the radiologic evidence. None of that was revealed for their use in preparing the Warren Commission report. Another tragedy of the second degree. Interestingly enough, the Warren Commission report put the entrance of the head wound lower and to the right on the head and placed an exit location for at least a fragment of the bullet at a position that was more toward the right and front. Later, the HSCA, for a number of reasons, would conclude that the location of the entrance wound, as set forth in the Warren Commission materials, was materially in error. That is, where the bullet was documented to have initially entered the head. The Warren Commission conclusion was actually lower and was, in fact, quite consistent with what Dr. McClellan and other doctors at Parkland expressed when describing the damage to the head. You heard McClellan clearly saying that a portion of the cerebellum was missing, a portion of the brain that resides closer to the lower portion of the skull. So the Warren Commission conclusion, ironically, was more consistent in one scenario with a shot that came in at a lower point of entry. The HSCA possibly concerned about the downward angle of trajectory, which as we now know was somewhere between 20 and 21 degrees, along with other evidence considered, concluded that the shot entered higher up. Wouldn't you know it? Controversy over measurements also came into play in the placement of this entry wound as well. Jeez Louise. There was at least one red herring, in my opinion, related to the autopsy. Even though it was clear that the president had died of a gunshot wound to the head, for some critics, it seemed relevant that in a comprehensive autopsy, more should have been done to determine the extent and the progression of the president's bout with Addison's disease and his adrenal gland failure that he was suffering from. Their contention was that as the commander-in-chief of the United States, he had a life-threatening disease, a disease that could have impacted all sorts of scenarios and certainly his overall ability to lead. We know how he led. 
he was treated with testosterone, among other things, for this affliction. And there is no doubt that that probably had a concerted impact on his sex drive. He knew in some ways that he was living on borrowed time. All of that together, I am sure, created some of the reckless personal and social behavior that are now more prominent in the overall story that is Camelot and the overall story that is JFK. In my mind, this whole topic is irrelevant. He led in an exceptional fashion on almost every historic occasion, perhaps with the exception of the Bay of Pigs, albeit not always to everyone's liking, but it's hard for history to criticize it now. There is more related to the autopsy. Ignoring and not making available the president's closing for use in the exact determination of where the bullet hole likely occurred in his back. Kennedy was perfectly tailored, and that bullet passed through his beautifully tailored suit and shirt before it entered into his body. When the location of those bullet holes were finally revealed through photographs of the suit and the shirt, defenders of the Warren Commission conclusions, those rabid defenders of an entry point that was higher up on the shoulder, closer to the neck, immediately got to work on the idea that Kennedy's well-tailored suit must have been bunched up in the back and that the position of the hole on the suit was not indicative of where the bullet actually entered on his body. I've worn suits in my life since I was 22 years old. Well, tailored suits, even when sitting in a car and for a man that was as fit as he and wearing a European cut, well, I guess anything could happen, but if you look at the visuals from the Zapruder film and other stills that were taken, his coat does not seem to be riding up at all, and I wouldn't have expected it with the kind of body he had and the suit he was wearing. It just doesn't seem to be the case. I know from my almost 40-year history of wearing suits, and especially a suit cut like his that day, it was just highly unlikely that his suit got bunched up in such a way that it supported a materially different point of entry than what was actually indicated by the hole in the suit itself. But the defenders of the Warren report try they did to make that argument. Oh, and we should not conclude this whole thing without just reiterating the idea that there might have been some form of alteration of the president's body or some use of other anatomical structures, for instance, the use of a separate brain or head when making x-rays or taking pictures that were not easily identifiable through facial identification. I know, that seems incredibly far-fetched, but some of the pictures are as incredibly far-fetched. Some of this was debunked by the House Select Committee on Assassinations, but there was more here than just what they were looking at. There is an interesting side story that is documented in a book called Without Smoking Gun. It's the story of the death of Lieutenant Commander William Pitzer. It has everything to do with real concerns that there was quite a nefarious goings-on related to the photographic evidence. Whether his death, which is documented in this very sensational story, is related to the cover-up, or not. Whether this is true or not is conjecture at this point. But the story is very spooky, and this was a man that was very close to it all. We'll get to that in one of the later episodes related to the autopsy. <laughs> I'll bet you can't wait for all the episodes I have coming, right? How many have I already promised today? Oh, and here's one more thing. 
The radiology results taken that night show a spray of radio-opaque objects which were embedded across the side of the president's head. Some of them were removed for analysis. The radiologist and the pathologist determined that they were a series of gunshot fragments. What is odd about that, at least to me, is that the ammunition that was supposedly fired from the Manlicher Carcano rifle was military-style ammunition. That is, it was ammunition encased in a full metal jacket. It's the type of ammunition sanctioned by the Geneva Convention. And this kind of ammunition is not supposed to break up when it hits its target. It's the kind of missile that is supposed to pass right through the recipient and do limited damage because it does not produce shrapnel in the same way that an unjacketed bullet would. I know, I know, I'm oversimplifying a full metal jacket penetration, but I'm just saying. There are some that believe that the bullet that actually hit and killed JFK was a frangible bullet, just the sort that might leave this kind of radiologic trail and not the splintering of a full metal jacket. You'll hear from a former high-ranking officer at the FBI on that one, someone who, for a long time, was very close to the top. But you will have to wait. That, too, is for another day and another episode in this series on the autopsy. Thank you for listening to episode 65 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. 